Once upon a time, a special coffee brand was born, Enchant Coffee. They believe that a good brew should be part of every good story. Enchant Coffee is a gourmet, fairy tale themed coffee company that offers flavors like Mad Tea Party, Potion of the Sea Witch, The Sleeping Curse, and The Enchanted Bean. Each is a unique blend of 100% Arabica coffee. Sign up for the newsletter at EnchantCoffee.com to receive 10% off your first order. EnchantCoffee.com. Add some magic to your morning. Hello and welcome to the Folklore Podcast Christmas Special. Or, probably more appropriate this year, Happy Hogswatch. Sir Terry Pratchett is probably one of our best-loved fantasy writers and humorists. Before his untimely death in March 2015, his prolific writing career had produced 41 novels set on the iconic Discworld, as well as a variety of other works. Terry's books were always full of folklore and legend, and he was ably helped with this by folklorist Jacqueline Simpson, who became a very close friend. When Terry passed away, it was thought that this would bring an end to his writing, but this was not quite the case. In October of 2023, a new collection of short stories written by Terry was published by Doubleday. These stories had been recently rediscovered, having been overlooked for a long time, for reasons that will become obvious in today's interview. Shortly after the publication of this book of short stories, A Stroke of the Pen, I had the pleasure of interviewing the husband and wife team who had tracked down all of these stories, Pat and Jan Harkin, at a science fiction and fantasy convention, Armadacon. In this interview, They explain how all of this came about, and how we now all get to enjoy these stories once again. After the interview, we close this episode with a chance to hear one of these stories, read by actor David Tennant. But first, here's the convention panel with Pat and Jan Harkin. Uh, So, welcome to to this panel, which is going to uh, discuss the publication of uh, a new book of Terry Pratchett's short stories, very early short stories, A Stroke of the Pen. Um, But but we'll also explore a bit more um, the story behind how this book came into existence um, and where these stories have come from and so on. Uh, Most of you in the room will know Pat and Jan very well, but for the benefit of anybody who is new or the benefit of those people that are listening to this later on and don't know Pat and Jan personally, um, could you just start by saying a little bit about yourselves and um, what Terry Pratchett and his body of work means to you as people? I think you should go first. Oh, okay. Right. Hello, I'm Jan. uh, I have two identities. I'm Dr Jan Clark. And I'm Mrs. Pat, or uh, Mrs. Harkin, or Dr. Harkin, or whatever else you want to shout down the corridor at me. So I'm quite happy to be called Jan Harkin. 
Uh, we um, are both medical doctors who have now retired for the last mm -hmm. five years, and we live in West Yorkshire in North Leeds. Well, I'm Pat Harkin. Uh, well, without wishing to repeat things, I am a retired medical doctor, as you just found out, and I've been a fan of Terry's and a friend of Terry's for <laughs> years. 30 years? I don't know. And I'm his carer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she's, she's very much the enabler. Without, without her support, I couldn't do half of the nutcasey things that I do in, in Discworld and other environs. So how did you first come across Terry's work uh, and, and how did it come to mean what it does to you now? Well, uh, I went to school in London and then moved to Yorkshire to go to university and stayed there. But I kept in touch with some school friends. And one summer we went down to visit them for the weekend, stayed with them. And as we were packing up the car to come home, my friend Graham turned to me and said, Oh, I've just read this, you might like it. And he handed me this book called The Colour of Magic. I took it home and I read it. And I liked it. And then it's all a bit of a blur. <laughs> but somehow I'm now being interviewed about finding new short stories of Terry's. Uh, I mean, it, uh, there's just something about Terry's writing that, that grabs you, that pulls you right in. And I, if I knew what it was, I would be writing it myself. But it, it obviously exists. It obviously exists, whatever it is. Yeah, I mean, I've I've read the books as well, and yeah, I, I find Terry's writing is it makes you laugh and then it makes you think, as as we heard. He, he has a, a passion and an anger behind some of these stories and they are so good. The writing ju is just superb. Um, so I've, I've, read, I've read the books, I'm no expert, um, but I really enjoy them. So yesterday we had a panel from Mark Burroughs who, who talked a, a lot about Terry's early career in the newspapers um, and, and his work there and how his writing came about. Um, so, a, stro a Stroke of the Pen is a collection of, um, they're described on the book cover as lost stories, rediscovered stories, perhaps, uh, which Terry wrote um, before the Discworld um, series was a thing, as short stories wi within newspapers, not under his own name. Hmm. Um, well, not, not usually under yeah. his own name. He, he did occasionally, occasionally write under his own name. So how did these stories come to be lost, and how have they come to be rediscovered? Right. Can we have the, the yeah. slides? There are some visual we aids some visual to help aids. you, unless you're listening but, to this as a podcast. But we can't see them, so it's going to be a bit difficult. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You... Okay, I'll start. Okay. And I'll go a little back a little bit. The, the trouble with this story is, every point you, you have to say, but actually the story really starts and go back a bit and then from there you go so we had when we put these first slides together we had about six slides all of which said but really the story started earlier than that Colin Smythe was Terry's first publisher and his agent for many years and he maintains a website on which he tries to document everything Terry has ever written fiction and non-fiction as he can find it obviously all the novels are there but there are lots of little holes in the in the reporting from from earlier years and uh, Colin was was ploughing through papers filling these in in uh, the British Library National Newspaper Archive in Collindale in those days in North, North London. East London yeah. Northwest London anyway about 20 miles from where Colin lived 
And then the British Library went and moved. They moved to Boston Spa in Yorkshire. And I, th I think, Colin, either we've been suckered <laughs> or Colin genuinely didn't know that, that we lived in Yorkshire as well because we were talking to him at a convention and he was bemoaning the fact that, that this wonderful resource was now far too far away from him. And we said, oh, that's where we live. We could go. What have we done? What have we done? <laughs> uh, so before lockdown, we were looking for non-fiction things that Terry had written. Um, he worked for the Central Electricity Generating Board for a while as a publicity officer. And they have a magazine called Power News. And it's every bit as exciting as you'd imagine. <laughs> uh, a typical story would be, ducks are raising a family in the cooling pond at such and such a power station. Or uh, new turbine blade flown in by helicopter. Wonderful stuff. And we would go through, oh, uh, looking at... Um, uh, local, local, the, the local drama company did Iolanthe, uh, so there's a report of that, Terry's initials at the bottom. Stuff like that. We were slowly going through, filling this in, and then lockdown came and, and that faded. <coughs> but then uh, Colin rang us one evening. Do you want to take over? Yeah, he'd, um, he'd been contacted by a fan who'd uh, collected a story, The Quest for the Keys, and uh, loved it so much that he'd actually cut out all the episodes and framed them. Now, he'd done this so well that he'd actually cut out all notification of which uh, newspaper it was and the dates. You know, very neat. But you can see at the bottom here it says Terry Pratchett, so it's definitely a Pratchett storyline from the newspapers. And this was something that Colin knew nothing of. Um, so this was... This was a little project that he gave us to do to try and find this story, which clearly had been published, but we didn't know quite where. And so we had to sort of devise a bit of a strategy, didn't we? Mm. Yeah, he, he, he rang us and said, you know, would you be interested in finding a Terry Pratchett story that nobody else has seen for 50 years? We thought about it <laughs> for about that long. And we got into it, yeah. Uh, Colin gave us a lot of supporting information where Terry had worked, which newspapers he'd worked for and when. Because this is, this is obviously from a newspaper, but we didn't know which one. Uh, the, the guy who found it couldn't remember when it was. He thought it was, quote, 50 years ago, unquote, which would have been 1972, at which point Terry was working for the Bucks Free Press. Yeah. The Western Daily Press Western Daily at that Press. point. Uh, but anyway, so we, we had some newspapers that he might have contributed to. We had a time range. We knew that Terry had left school in 1965. It couldn't be before. Well, very unlikely to be before that. Uh, the story, I don't think the actual words are on screen, but the action starts off in the city of Moorpork. Not Ankh-Moorpork, but, but Moorpork. Um, and we thought... It was unlikely Terry would reuse the name Moorpork if The Colour of Magic had already been published, and we therefore thought our sort of upper end limit would be 1983, 1984, when Colour of Magic uh, hit, hit the presses. And we, we decided to start at 1965 and yeah, work and through. Yeah, and work our way forward. Have we got some pictures of the, uh, our prey? Yeah. Oh, I've got some pictures of the library. Um, 
The, you know the, the beautiful St Pancras Reading Room? Um, well, the, the one at Boston Spa is somewhat more modest, but... Uh, Still very nice. Very I mean, friendly. Big. Lovely. Um, Twice Boston, the size of this room? Yeah, yeah. Boston Spa mm. is um, just outside Weatherby, which is 200 miles from London, straight up the A1, and uh, actually contains 75% of the British Library stock. Um, so uh, this is like a big campus place with lots of buildings, but it's a weird environment because there's no people walking around. Even though there are you know, 500 employees, you don't see them. Um, and we live in North Leeds, which is about a 20 minute drive from here, uh, from, from, from Boston Spa, yeah. And um, this is the National Newspaper Archive building. They're quite squat, the buildings on the campus. There's a local law that says that they can't be any taller than a local church spire. So there's this building and there's another, um, another one uh, which also contains newspaper archive, uh, quaintly known as the Additional Storage Building. Um, Librarians, huh? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you see the sort of scale of this because some cars parked down at the bottom there. Um, so this is what it's like inside. Yeah, someone, someone described this as library porn uh, because it's just, you know, wow, librarians love totally this. Totally is library porn. Absolutely. Mm. Um, it's more of a machine than a library. Um, it is um, uh, robots retrieve from mm. the shelves. Because? And it, because humans aren't, aren't welcome there. There's a 14% oxygen saturation in the atmosphere in the building to prevent paper igniting. So if you took a match in there, you could obviously light the head of the match, but the wood wouldn't catch, yeah? They don't have sprinklers, I believe, um, mm. because they don't need them. They, 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 they believe they would never need them no. because the fire couldn't catch, and they would then have a lot of papier-mâché. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so they um, so you can't go in there for more than about 20 minutes without breathing apparatus. Um, mm. Yeah, so um, there's 300 miles of shelving, 60 million items in the newspaper archive. That's out of a total in the British Library of about 170 million items. So it's big, yeah. And the other thing is these robots are clever. Um, they stock according to how often an item is requested. So they'll, they'll keep the frequently requested things in a more accessible place than the ones that aren't used so much. So a, an astonishing bit of machinery. Okay, so yeah, this is the children's circle Uncle Jim bit. I think um, Mark used this. This is, is the first time we saw um, the fiction of Terry in the, in the Books Free Press. Um, the, the week before this, there was a, an awful piece of writing. Yeah. <laughs> if you've either read the book of uh, The Amazing Morris or seen the animation, You'll know that the rats carry with them uh, a child's storybook. Mr. Bunsey has an adventure, yeah. and it's terrible. Yeah. Hippity hoppity. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, hippity hoppity down the track went Mr. Bunsey. The week before this is basically Mr. Bunsey. It, it's <laughs> that level of writing, and you'll notice that Terry's name isn't on this. It's Uncle Jim. Uncle Jim was the a placeholder name they just used since I mean, the stories had to come from somewhere. They, they couldn't just appear out of nowhere. The kids asked questions like that. So the junior reporter, or whichever mug had no better excuse, wrote as the name of Uncle Jim. 
Um, it, there were Uncle Jim's before Terry, there were Uncle Jim's after Terry left, and then there are the very special Uncle Jim's that are Terry, uh, yeah. which are so different in quality. I mean, the one before, the week before, was a was a, a thing about how smoking was a terrible thing and it was, you know, it was very bad for you. And then this story is all about how the cigarette ash floated down onto the carpet and Snibrel was, was uh, named as well. So it's the carpet people uh, starting off. So here we have a very, very rare picture, and that is of Pat doing some work. <laughs> when we walked into the, uh, the reading room as a, a, a pair of researchers, they very kindly uh, allowed us a side room so that we could talk, and the little sort of squeaks of enthusiasm when we found Terry's work uh, wouldn't disturb the other readers. Um, so we, this is this is in the reading room side room, and there's a, there's a couple of, um, of stations there. And you can mm. see the the sort of size of the volumes that uh, that we were ploughing through. Again, you saw some of this in Mark's talk. Mm. Um, so if if you would like to uh, to know how to find a lost literary masterpiece, I run a masterclass in this. <laughs> uh, it goes like this: turn the page, scan the page, make a note. Turn the next page, scan the next page, make a note, turn the page. I think you're beginning to get the hang of it, you're, you're obviously you're naturals. It's, on the other hand it was wonderful and exciting because we knew that this treasure, the, the quest for the keys was buried in their summer but otherwise, dear lord it was boring. Yeah, but I mean, we, we had to do it systematically, mm. though, didn't we? Um, you'd been involved in setting up spreadsheets before. Oh, yeah, I, I did a, a cataloging project at the university. I learnt the hard way that it is better to collect information you don't need than to not collect something and then halfway through have to stop, and go right back to the beginning and start again. So we were recording everything, which, which newspaper it was, which date, which page. Uh, one of the newspapers had volume numbers and serial numbers. Or which page the stuff was on. Colin even wanted to know where on the page an article was. Uh, and we, we collected enormous amounts of, uh, of information. Now, this is, this is incredible hard work. I'll just say that you're seeing some incredible hard work going on there. Uh, but it's not something that two people can really work together on. It just takes one person to scan a page. So we would take different volumes of newspapers. Have you got some of them? Yeah, there we some go. of those. This is, this is our raw material. Those things are as big as a broadsheet newspaper and must weigh 10 or 15 Quite pounds. Heavy, yeah. Yeah. Um, so we would decide that we are, today we are doing 1970 for the Bucks Free Press starting in January. I'd get the January volume, Jan would get the February volume. We would work independently. At the end of the afternoon, we would collate our uh, findings. There was a little bit on microfilm, but it actually was very tiring and, and difficult to use because by the time you'd sort of focused down on the text, you'd lost track of where you were on the pages and so on. So f very little of this was, was on microfilm and none of it had been digitised. Which is these is the laser pointer. Um, I think it might be on the side. That is microfilm. The little reel of stuff, yeah. We hate the microfilm. It's terrible stuff. Yeah. Anyway, so at the end of the afternoon. Oh yeah, yeah. Just saying that um, we, yes, we 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 used this to correlate, didn't we, mm -hmm. to make sure that we we were picking up <coughs> on stuff that we knew about already, 
Um, so they were on, on uh, Collins' website. So this is one um, which is bylined in the Western Daily Press with Terry's name, and that was already known about. So we knew that we were on the right sort of track for searching. So then we'd we'd be correlating things through the day. Yeah. And then after we'd been doing this for about three weeks or a month, something like that, at the end of one afternoon, we were putting our findings together. Jan was reading out to me what she'd found, and she read out, uh, was it The Blackberry Thing? The story called The Blackberry Thing by Patrick Cairns. And I filled it into my spreadsheet, and she said, no, 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 you've, you've spelt it wrong. It's not blackberry as in the fruit, it's blackberry. And I thought, well, hang on. That rings a bell. The Johnny Maxwell books are set in Blackberry. And so are some of the other children's stories. Interesting. But this is this is Patrick Cairns. This is this is not Terry Pratchett. And then I looked at the text and it mentioned that it was the town of Blackberry in the county of Gritshire. And I thought, oh I'm sure that that's it. So I dug up my Kindle, did a quick search through the, the Pratchett books, and yeah, Gritshire. Is a, is a place name that Terry used. And our first thought was, this is, this is something new, this is something exciting. And our second thought was, actually, it's probably just a coincidence, because Blackberry, Blackberry, it's not that great a literary invention. I can imagine any reporter doing it. Gritshire was a bit more suggestive, but actually bits of Derbyshire are referred to as Gritshire. And also, as we saw with Uncle Jim, that there may have been a, a universe that the junior reporters were expected to stick mm. with for their stories. Yeah, Everybody who writes for Doctor Who knows about the Daleks, even though they didn't invent them. And it was quite possible the junior reporters at the Books, Books Free Press had... Uh, well, sorry, the Western Daily Press had a, had a little uh, universe in which they set their stories and they shared. But we thought, we'll ask Colin's advice. So I took some pictures, I emailed them to Colin, and he rang us back within about 10 minutes, saying, uh, the style is definitely Terry, and what I know that you don't know is that Cairns was his mother's maiden name. And you can argue that Patrick and Pratchett aren't too distantly related Terry Pratchett Patrick Cairns mm. so and at that point we could have done with the, with the soundproofing from the library going, yes, yes there was not, yes 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 <laughs> so then we went back and rechecked and we found several more stories and then we sat down and we went right back to the beginning and we checked again for Cairns all the way through to try and find how many mm. stories there might be because we, we had seen several Cairns stories but hadn't made the connection at that point. And that was very, very exciting. Mm -hmm. But if you remember back to the beginning of this talk, we had a little project. Yeah. We'd, we'd found all these new Patrick Cairns short stories. We hadn't found the thing we'd actually been sent to look for. The quest for the keys was still out there. We'd searched everywhere at this point from 19... 65. 65 through to 1974, I think, the Ken stories were becoming very thin, and then we kept searching, and we did about another yeah. seven years yeah. and found nothing. But actually, one other thing that we, we knew about was that there were a lot more children's stories around Christmas 
and around, you know, like the school holidays and stuff. So one of the things that we did find, I've got it, yes, here, is um, the Christmas Eve edition of the Western Daily Press um, for um, 1970. And uh, at this point, Terry was allowed to do some feature articles. And here we see a very young man wandering down Bristol High Street dressed as one of the three wise men looking for gold, frankincense and myrrh. In the, boots. Yeah, a yeah, little, little feature of a very young Terry. But then I had a little look at the right-hand corner of that page. And there is a partridge in a postbox by Patrick Cairns. So not only did he have a feature article, he also had one of his stories in that page. Yeah, he was competing for page space with himself. <laughs> so, yeah. So then we had a little uh, fallow point, didn't we? Because we mm. kept on looking and looking and looking. Oh. And we were about to get... We got as far as, as 1983, which we thought, is that's the, that's the publication date for The Colour of Magic. That's our, our likely update. It must be a different newspaper. But we'll give it one more year. We'll just, we'll just have one last go. You know, just, just one more try. One more try. Yeah. And then we were there sat we there and... It was Monday the 30th of July, 1984, that we spotted the first episode of The Quest for the Keys. 1984. And, and there were a whole series of these daily in the summer holidays for the children. A total of 36 instalments... Um, and then twice weekly in September to finish it off. And there was a quiz, and you could win a tent mm. if you <laughs> Four um, people did, but data protection means we can't tell you their names. <laughs> so eventually, yes, we did manage to find it. Mm. Um, yeah. Uh, it's, so we've got um, the Patrick Cairns and the, mm. uh, and the other stories. And you can see in the first paragraph of that one there, the quest for the keys, far away and long ago when dragons still existed and the only arcade game was ping pong in black and white, a wizard cautiously entered a smoky tavern in the evil, ancient, foggy city of Moorpork and sidled up to the bar. Yeah. yeah. So we, we, we actually ended up finding three things. We had been sent for the quest for the keys, which was known to exist. Colin had physical bits of it in his house. So it was that. We found Patrick Cairns, stories which we hadn't been looking for because nobody knew they existed. But there's a third one, and it's, it's, it's the smallest of the things we found, but it's somehow it's the one I'm, I'm proudest of, in that Colin had told me several years ago that there was a lost Pratchett story. There was a story called Mr. Brown's Holiday Accident. Uh, it's about a man called Mr. Brown who goes on holiday and I don't want to spoil it for you, but, you know. Anyway, it was serialised in five parts. The first four were printed, and then a week's print run was lost due to industrial action, which was not uncommon in the early 70s. Usually, however, the, the serials were just carried over to the next printing. So it was May the 1st, 8th, 15th, 22nd of 1972. Uh, and then... There is no copy of the 29th of, of May edition in the archives. And in fact, the next one along, the, the 6th of July edition, has written on the front page in pencil, 29th of May, NP, not printed. So it was assumed that this story had just fallen through the cracks. It should have been published in the next issue, which just said, sorry, there's no story this week. 
and therefore you know we have a tragic story and it's lost now you probably didn't notice but on some of the pages or some of the stories that Terry wrote had titles associated with them that was the Western Daily Press mm. put titles on the stories whereas the Bucks Free Press didn't they were just by Uncle Jim and here's this week's story if you look at Colin's website they've all got titles so that you can sort of refer to them easier rather than saying the story that was printed on July the 9th or whatever you can actually say whatever the title was um, and the way we were working was that I would, whenever we found anything, we would photograph the hell out of it. The page number, the f full page, any images, any graphics. And then at the end of the evening, of course, of course in, the, in the phone, these just become image 4279356, 4279357, and so on. In the evenings, I would sit down and methodically go through them and rename them. So we would have, you know, Mr. Bunsey Has an Adventure, part one of five, and the date. And I was, and uh, for the Bucks Free Press ones, I needed to get the, the official titles from Colin's website. So I had Colin's website up on uh, one screen of my computer, my JPEG viewer on, on the other, and I would go through and, and, and update everything. And I was going through this particular set of uh, images, and I went to Colin's site, and it said, uh, this, this was never printed. What? No, 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 it, it was. It's just over there. It says, no, no, this was lost. I'm, I'm making this a dialogue. Colin wasn't there. <laughs> but... Colin had told me this didn't exist, and his website said it didn't exist. But I've got it on this screen. So I turned around and knocked my mouse, and all the, all the windows went and disappeared. And I expanded them all back up again. Couldn't find it. And I, re I went back to Colin's website, and he says, this doesn't exist. And I said, it doesn't exist, and I can't find it. I, I, must, I can't have imagined it. Can I have imagined So... Went back to went back to the the phone, sorted everything into chronological order, and just worked through the whole series of things again. And there it was. It wasn't in the books. Free the books press. free press. It was in the midweek daily press, because on May the twenty ninth, the the midweek. Uh, the, so many newspapers. Yes, the books free press was actually given as a free supplement in the midweek free press that yeah. week why we don't know but it was a 24 page supplement of the midweek press and that's where yeah. the story was so the the archive have a copy but it is stapled inside the wrong newspaper if you want to go and find it you have to go and find the june edition of, of the of the other one but there we have it we have we finally have the uh, the <coughs> missing part the, the the one known loss in Terry's canon has been patched up and that, that's the one that pleases me most. Yeah. So you went back to Colin at that point <laughs> and his, I, his I know something was. you don't know. <laughs> and his yeah, he, was, was. he was very, very pleased because again, he's, he's like, like me, he's a completist. He yeah. likes to see everything. I mean, right. it was fortunate that we started at 65 and worked forward. I mean, if we'd started at 84 and worked backwards, we would have found this in a trice. You know, yeah. and, and that would be our project finished. Yeah, done, we'd, have, we'd have given up and gone home. We were yeah. sent to find the quest for the keys. Here's the quest for the keys, Gov. Thanks, goodbye. And the Patrick, Patrick Scan stuff would still be unknown. Mr. Brown's holiday accident would be unfinished. So where did you go from here? You now have this collection of, of <laughs> stories out of the newspaper. Colin knows about them. So yeah. what, what's the path then from there to 
Doubleday publishing A Stroke of the Pen? Well, um, th- uh, unlike many libraries I've been in, uh, you, there is no fo- photocopier in the British Library. It's all You have to photograph what you want. So all the photographs that we had of relevance went to Colin, and then we heard nothing yeah. uh, for quite a long time. Uh, I mean, we knew they, you know, they, they might... We, we know on. nothing about how books are put together. We know you go into a bookshop and you buy them, and that's how you get them. We know, we know where books come from. Mummy and Daddy taught us that. <laughs> but whether what we had found was enough to make a book or a thin pamphlet or whatever, we had no idea. So we just handed it all, all over to Colin, and then the way I tend to phrase it is all of a sudden, nothing happened. Yeah. For know? a whole year, For pretty a whole much. Year. Yeah. And then again, the phone rang, and, it's, and it was, uh, oh, I've just been told the publishers are about to announce that there will be a new book. So you know, get ready for... Yeah, get your socials ready. for battle. Ready. Yeah. Mm. Yes, get your socials ready, that's what he said. I'd go and look that up, didn't I? <laughs> yeah. uh, so, you know, how, what was going on behind the scenes, we don't know, because mm. we weren't involved. We, we had done our job, we yeah. had done our duty. And then suddenly you got very busy again once it reached the stage where the book had been announced, I'm guessing. Yeah, we... we Got a lot of uh, calls from radio, radio interviews mostly. Yeah, and mm-hmm. um, and a couple of um, well, Mark interviewed us for for big issue, mm-hmm. and uh, Reader's Digest interviewed yeah, us. Did I didn't, I didn't know it still existed, mm-hmm. but anyway. Uh, That's how you know you've made it to the big abso- time. Absolutely, you know, Digest, absolutely, yeah, and yeah. and uh, we went on Radio Leeds for the morning show and things like that. Um, yeah, it was it was quite fun, and it was so very touching when we saw Colin's intro. That was really mm. really uh, amazing. Yeah, I mean the first we knew was when uh, a proof copy turned up in the post. Yeah, yeah, and the proof copy, which I also have a copy of um, from from reviewing it for the publisher, uh, is essentially just if you just lifted the text out of these and put them in here, then that's what you get with a lot of things that say artwork to follow. So uh, there is now a beautifully illustrated version of this. How many people have got a copy of Stroke of the Pen so far? (laughs) One being waved at me. Okay, so there's a couple of you that already have a copy. I think it's fair to say, isn't it, those of you that do, and and Pat and Jen, that um, it's very easy to to see Terry's influence in these stories and, and, and you can kind of see the seeds of Discworld being sown in some of them. Is there anything yeah. that particularly stood out for you um, reading through these that you thought, I can see where this went later on in Terry's writing? In one of the stories, Fossil Beach, the protagonists find uh, a cottage and, the, and in the cupboard under the stairs is basically a porthole to the Cretaceous period. Mm. It's not that far from climbing through the window to get to the last continent, mm. in however many books later. Um, and what was the, the... Oh, I, I think the, the way that he deals with bureaucracy in the Blackberry weather is just oh, yes. absolutely Terry mm. all the way. That, that, that was written by a man who has sat as the junior reporter at the back doing the notes of far too many council meetings. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there are, there are some ideas behind Unseen University, probably, in, in some of these as well, it's been argued as well. Yes, the, the what's it called? The well, the, the Quest for the Keys has got a lot of uh, more Porkian yeah. bits, mm. Discworldian yeah. bits. Yeah, the, the Quest for the Keys must have been written around the same time as Colour of Magic, Light, Fantastic. 
So that's that's the, the, the writing of a man who's already had three books published. The others, the short stories, are the writings of a junior reporter who's finding his way. They're still worth reading. Um, I think they'd make lovely bedtime stories for kids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and the, you know, they're all nice short stories. They're, they're just a few pages long each, but but they you even from the titles of some of them, you can see the potential of what you're going to get. Obviously, mm. you know how good King Wenceslas went pop for the DJ's feast of Stephen. Mm. The haunted steamroller, I think, is a great. I title. like mm-hmm. that one. I, I like think the haunted steamroller is yeah. a great one. Yeah. Um, okay, so so we're probably approaching the stage where we ought to invite anybody who has questions to uh, to grill Pat and Jan about this whole process and and so on. So, uh, David, you were yes, first up. Yes, th- this quest for the quest for the keys. Mm-hmm. Are you going to write it up as an epic adventure story? It's <laughs> it's in the book. It's in the book. It's in the back back page. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. not. If you've read the proof copy, it's not in the proof copies. Uh, it's not in the audio book, but it is in the back of the printed copies. It's a couple of back pages. I mean, a whole book. Oh. This epic adventure. Oh, I don't know. The quest for the quest for the quest for the keys. You <laughs> <mean>. <laughs> yeah. Well, I have to think about that. Of course, we've got nothing to do now. Stop well, we could write it up as a Dungeons and Dragons module. <laughs> <laughs> you are confronted by a publicist. You must roll three D. Oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> librarian is angry. Yeah. <laughs> would, would you say that um, the the earlier of these stories uh, are they on the same lines as Crumbling Castle, which is that kind, that kind of quality? Yes, I mean they, they were written some of them around about the same time. Yeah. The reason that they didn't get included in those earlier compilations is that we didn't know they were Terry's. So if you imagine the Terry stories, the Cairn stories are just interdigitated in between them. So they're they're very much of the same style because they are written by the same person with the same level of experience. Yeah. I, I, I mean, he was a, a junior reporter, and I suspect he had a limitation on space for his, for his stories too. So um, some of them are short, some of them are a bit longer, and that may be why, you know, maybe mm. there's pressure on, on space for a week. Who knows? David? Once you found the, uh, the Ken um, link, did you have to go back through and read all of the other dubious Uncle Jims just in case he wrote under any other name? Well, the, the Uncle Jim, they, they gave neither title nor attribute, nor, nor writer name. So it would, have, it would have meant reading them. And there are limits to what we'll do. Quest <laughs> <laughs> for the future. But... but Colin already knew about those. Terry had disclosed them, so it's it's unlikely that they're in there. It is one of the things on the list of what should we do if we ever decide to look a little bit deeper, scratch a little bit further in. Are there any other newspapers in the area that he was working for that he might have worked for that he was whatever I don't know what the phrase would be, but he, yeah. he was submitting things to one paper while working for another. I mean, it was common protocol then to to work under a pseudonym if you were mm. publishing in another newspaper away from your your home base. Yeah. But I mean, you know, the options are just huge. It could be a national paper, it could be a, another regional paper, and of course, the regional papers were the internet at the time. I mean, there was no there was no other source of information. So there were lots and lots yeah. of regional papers. Every council meeting, every football result, they they were all there, and these these whacking great. Newspapers. There was a hand at the yeah, back. Yeah, Alison. I'm just having this thing going through my head. You know, there, there are popular things uh, where 
the NASA will, will get people to decide whether something looks like a galaxy or not, mm -hmm. and then forward all the yes, it may be an expert to then sift further. I'm picturing something like that, where you divvy out bucks, free presses, etc. to all of us, uh, that we get one each, and then we go, oh, that feels a little bit, Terry, what do you think? And, and then we've done an issue of sift for you. Right. Well, once you once you've got it up and running, do let us know, and we'll we'll. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that would be feasible if and when they digitise this yeah. particular yes. bit. You know. Yeah. Uh, the, they haven't got got there yet. So these are not in the British newspaper archives, digitised. No, not digitised. They, no. they are they are physical copies. Yeah. There is. A, a project to digitise all Britain's newspapers, mm. and they've digitised some, but nothing of the area that we were interested in. Um, and when you do look at them, the OCR isn't brilliant. <laughs> we know this from, from doing research. So yeah. Tracy, for example, has been researching uh, witch stories in our area, and we have lots of stories about witches, but we also have stories about watches, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of horse racing stories, bizarrely, as yeah, well. That's, that's yeah. So, so OCR is not your friend in terms mm. of digitised newspapers. It has it's, to be it's said. It's like looking at code because you can't even tell when it, when it comes up on the screen what you're looking at because it's just essentially a jumble of random letters and symbols which may occasionally have one word of English in it. Yeah. Mm. So it's, it's very hard to use. So, so for this kind of work, there, there is nothing better than just sitting mm -hmm. in front of the materials and physically going through them, really. And it's I can recommend the canteen at the British Library if you want to go along. <laughs> well, they're, they're, up, they're, they're doing up the, uh, the whole site. They're, they're building another newspaper archive building, at least, and there's also a visitor centre going in. So um, they've also acquired a beautiful old building in the middle of Leeds, and I'm not quite sure what they're going to do with that. But, um, yeah, there's certainly expansion, so it might be even more user-friendly at Boston Spa. Um, yeah. There was an old mill building, yeah. and they used to keep sheep on the roof. This is in Leeds, yeah. In Leeds city centre. Near the railway station. Sheep on the roof. In the previous panel that we've just had here, we're talking about using folklore and mythology in fiction uh, and things like this. Um, and I, and I wanted to ask you about, about that aspect of Terry's writing as far as you're able to answer, because you've obviously um, known Terry, uh, knew Terry for a long time. Um, uh, Jacqueline Simpson, one of, one of the UK's most prominent and, and lovely and frankly eccentric <laughs> folklorists. Um, I know Jacqueline very well, she's a lovely lady. Um, every time she walks past me, oh she doesn't get out anymore, she's in her 90s, but she used to, every time she walked past me in the Folklore uh, Society offices, just after I'd published Black Dog Folklore, she used to just turn around and bark at me. <laughs> <laughs> no conversation. She would just bark at me and then walk off. She's um, That's rough. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, Pat is available for children's parties. Um, <laughs> what, what, what can you say about Terry's um, research and the way that he, he worked with people like Jacqueline for, for his writing? Every minute of every day was research for Terry. He, everything just went in. And stay, well, sometimes it stayed there. Sometimes it came back out onto the page when it, whenever he needed it. Uh, you, you had to be quite careful what you said around Terry. Yeah. Or sort of two years later, he would say, "You said such and such, but actually it's such and such." What? <laughs> I don't remember that. You know. Oh, well, he did. He did. Yeah. Well, you had some yeah. interesting phone calls with him, though. 
um, when he was looking, oh. looking from your yeah. point of view, from research? He, he would specifically go to people he, he knew had interest in various areas. So um, he rang me up one day and said, um, how much strength would it take to pull somebody's head off? <laughs> I didn't know, and I felt bad about it for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> well, I should know this. Terry wants to know. I should know this. No idea. I'll, I'll, I'll see if I can look it up. So I went away, and I, I looked it up, and I came back and, and uh, gave the results to him. And uh, the, the, the answer is, no human being has the strength to tear off another human being's head. Because you, you would... <laughs> Basically, you would tear your own arms apart from the effort. And he said, oh, but it's not a human being, it's an orc. At this point, orcs have not been in Discworld. An orc? Yeah. So, well, an orc's a fictional creature, so if you're writing it, and you want it to be strong enough to tear off somebody's head, then it, it can be. You know, whatever you write is the right answer. He said, yes, I know that. But I want it to be the right right answer. <laughs> so it, so, it's got to be feasible. So it's got to, yeah, it's yeah. got to be consistent with, with what we know of, of reality and fantasy. He, he, didn't, he, he didn't like the, uh, you know, with a, with a wave of the magic wand, it, it was all better again. Yeah. You, know, yeah. you, you, had, to, you had to work things out. You, there was no free lunch in a, in a Terry Pratchett plot. Yeah. Uh, certainly, his his use his use of real world folklore is, is excellent, and Jacqueline obviously had a big influence in that. Um, I think they met, correct me if I'm wrong, in a signing queue. Is that right? And had, it was after a discussion about magpies um, yeah, and the yeah, Terry one for sorrow rhyme. Yeah, Terry wanted Terry had come had realised that there is more than one version of the the magpie rhyme. Uh, so at a signing queue, he was just asking people, "How many versions do you know?" And you know, most people were saying one, or some people might say two or three. And then this uh, lady came to the front of the queue, and he asked her, and she said, um, about 14, I think. <laughs> and that, that was how we met uh, Jacqueline, and they got on like a house on fire. He, he brought her down to Wincanton for one of the Wincanton events to meet the fans. And we were, we were sat in Bernard Pearson's kitchen. Possibly drink had been taken, I couldn't possibly comment. <laughs> and it, it was time, time to go. And uh, Terry said to Jacqueline, so, what do you think of the fans? And she said, it's very different from life at the university. <laughs> to which I said, ah, not so much academia as macadamia. <laughs> and Terry went, you mean they're all nuts? I thought, bow, got it. <laughs> I set them up, Terry, you whack them out of the park. <laughs> Yeah, she, she was a fantastic influence on his writing from that respect, for sure. OK, we, we need to close this off, I think. So um, for those that haven't got a copy of Stroke of the Pen, is is now available from Doubleday Penguin Random House Publishers. Uh, and really, it, it, if you're uh, a fan of Terry's writing in any way, shape or form, you're not going to be able to you know, complete and get a full picture of the kind of body of work that he did without reading some of these stories. Um, you know, it's a, his, his later brilliance in the Discworld novel still absolutely shines through, I think, doesn't it, in these earlier stories in, in many and varied ways, I would encourage anybody uh, who is a, is a fan to, to seek out a copy for sure. So uh, with that in mind, I think we'll close this off. Please show your appreciation, everybody, to Pat <laughs>
I hope you enjoyed this insight into the rediscovery of Terry Pratchett's early newspaper short stories. The Stroke of the Pen is available wherever books can be found. This episode closes Season 8 of the Folklore Podcast, and I am truly grateful for your support again this year. Don't forget that you can join our Patreon page at patreon.com slash thefolklorepodcast to help us to keep making more content. I'll be back in January with the start of a brand new season of the Folklore Podcast. In the meantime, here's David Tennant reading How It All Began. How It All Began Read by David Tennant Right from the start, some of the older cavemen were completely against the idea. It's unnatural, they said. Anyway, where's it going to end? But the younger cavemen said, That's progress, Grandad. Pass us another log. The thing was called fire, and it was brought back to the cave by Og, the inventor, who said he found it eating a tree. You had to keep it in a little cage of stones, he said. It kept you warm, he said, which was the opposite of what you felt when the rain dripped into the cave at night. Hal, the chieftain, was a bit puzzled and worried by it. "'Are you sure nothing will go wrong this time?' he asked. "'It was bad enough when I was hit by one of your throwing sticks.' "'Spears,' corrected Og. "'That was a design error, that was. "'This is foolproof. "'If you don't feed it with wood, it dies.' "'Remarkable,' said Hal. "'That night, the cavemen sat round the new fire and ate cold mammoth while giant creatures trundled and sneezed in the dark night outside. Og talked at length about the amazing possibilities of his invention. Hal just chewed his mammoth and watched the flames. The fire bit him. Ouch! You shouldn't touch it, said Og hurriedly. It's snappish. I'm going to bed, said Hal huffily, and shuffled off, sucking his finger. One of the women was appointed to look after the fire and keep it fed while the men were hunting. Soon it was part of the cave way of life. Then, one day, Og accidentally dropped a lump of wild pig into the fire and invented cookery. Cookery! Even Hal couldn't disagree with that. There were twenty-seven ways of cooking mammoth to start with. There were dodo egg omelettes with snake sauce, there were great slabs of baked boar with honey gravy, and, of course, there were toadstool pies and deadly nightshade soup, which was unfortunate. You can't make an omelette without breaking eggs, said Og cheerfully. We all make mistakes. There was no stopping him after that. He drew with charcoal on the cave walls and invented art. He managed to tame a wolf puppy and invented dogs. But the trouble really started later. Og invented, well, he happened to leave some grapes in a bowl of water, and when he remembered them, they had fermented. The wine tasted lovely. When everyone came home from hunting, they all tried it too. All except Hal. He was still down on the plains chasing a particularly fast giraffe. He stopped when he smelled smoke. It was coming from the cave. Hmm? He thought. The fire's broken loose. Hal dropped his giraffe and ran. All round the cave the grass and trees were ablaze and he grunted and swore as he crashed through the hot ash. Inside 
The tribe were peacefully sleeping off the effects of Hogg's latest invention. Wake up! screamed Hal. You've let the fire escape! And it was growing fast. For miles around, great flames were crackling through the grass. Animals fled. Birds flew, squawking out of the smoke. Half blinded by smoke, choking in the hot air, the tribe were led by Hal down to the river. They slopped down among the rushes and burst into tears. Hal was white with fury as he turned to the miserable Og. Right, he growled. That's it. I'm not standing for any more. I've had enough. Everything you do leads to trouble. I'm a patient ape-man, but this time you've gone too far. Get out of the tribe. Og slunk away through the reeds without a backward glance. Is that wise? asked Ugg, one of the oldest ape-men. He'll perish all by himself. Hal snorted. What chance has he left us, then? There'll be no game for miles around. The fire doesn't seem to have spread so far down river. Come on, if we don't move on, we'll starve. All the next day, they trudged through the mud. Here and there, the fire was still burning, and where there were no flames, there was just grey, hot ash. In the evening, it rained. The tribe slept fitfully in the branches of a charred tree, while growling saber-toothed tigers prowled beneath them. The rain continued all the next day. The tribe spent most of it huddled together in a little hollow in the rocks. After a while, someone said, The fire was warm. And someone else added, Cooked zebra was one of the best things that ever happened to me. As the sun sank into a mass of black clouds, even Ugg said wistfully, He wasn't a bad sort in his way. Hal shivered. He'd have probably set fire to the whole world if we'd let him, he muttered. A wolf howled in the distance. Another one answered. It was much nearer. Suddenly Hal saw the black shape padding around the edge of the hollow, and his hair stood on end. Women and children in the centre, he yelled, reaching for a stone. The wolves closed in, The ape-men hit them with sticks and threw stones, but the wolves were desperate with hunger because of the fire, and more of them seemed to be appearing. Then Og leapt into the hollow, holding a blazing branch in his hand. He hurled it at the wolves and started fiddling with an oddly shaped piece of wood. It was a bow. Arrows started raining down on the yelping pack. He didn't say anything. When the last of the wolves had fled, he simply beckoned the tribe to follow him, and led them to a small clearing where several zebras were roasting over a fire. Under some trees, he had built a strange sort of cave out of branches and bracken. It looked warm and inviting. Well, Hal couldn't refuse to let Og back into the tribe, not since most of the ape-men were already tucking into slices of zebra. I followed you. I thought you might need me eventually, was all Og said. Soon, A little village had been built. Og discovered that seeds would grow and invented farming. He invented animal traps, which was a much better way of catching meat than hunting. Then he invented wings and unfortunately decided to try them out from the top of a cliff. But several up-and-coming young ape-men had got the idea and they invented civilization. Eventually, the village grew. Some of the open plain was turned into fields. 
Pretty soon, hunters like Hal were beginning to look a bit foolish. That's how it all began. Hal sat in front of his hut, looking thoughtful and feeling slightly uneasy. I wonder where it's all going to end, 